Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and we're here every Saturday to defend and promote public education. And today we've got quite some interesting material for you. We're going to talk about charter schools aren't the answers uh, for social problems, and um, community schools could be in both America and in Australia. Here in Australia, of course, they try to uh, amalgamate our public schools and make them into mega schools, and they're not working. But community schools have always worked, and they could work again. Uh, Then we're going to talk about um, the ongoing lockdowns in Australian schools uh, and the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. We're going to also go up to Northern Territory which gets less money per public school student than any other place in Australia, even though they have all those Indigenous children up there. Shocking. So we'll find out how they make a little go a long way. And we're going to find out too about the OECD and what it has to do about investing in career guidance. And of course, we have a great state school, which we promised you last week. But let's get the show on the road. Our press release 899 will be on our website at www.adogs.info. Private schools create social problems. Mega schools are not the answer, but community schools could be. In Australia, as in other countries, private schools exacerbate and create economic and social inequalities. They also undermine public education and cause the amalgamation of local schools into mega schools, such as we've seen in the failed experiment at Shepparton. Private schools in Australia try to ameliorate the grievous effects they have on the social fabric by offering scholarships to members of the deserving poor. But as well, we all know, most children of all walks of Australian society, except the foolish aspiring middle class and the very wealthy who patronise wealthy schools, private schools, all of the others are in our public schools and that is two thirds, the vast majority. Now there are alternatives to offering a wide range of opportunities in public schools deprived of enrolments and resources by private competition or declining population. 
the benefits of the local community schools over private mega schools have been discovered in both America and Australia, as the following articles indicate. Australia was trying them in the 1970s and 1980s before the neoliberal ideologues like Kennett attacked and closed most of them. I think the saddest thing that ever happened was the closure of Arden Community Group uh, Public School, where they were educating the children who were literally on the streets, feeding and making sure that they had a bed for the night and were being educated. And that was one of the first that um, Kennett closed. And now, of course, it's upmarket apartments. Let's go over to America. Uh, Jeremy Moller from the Progressive Magazine in the United States has got very relevant information on this topic. Charter schools aren't the answer, but community schools could be, is the title of his article. And I'll now pass you over to Sorrel, who will tell you what he has to say. Thank you, Jean. So Jeremy Moller has written that it is our mission to support all children wrote the social media strategist of Texas's idea public, public schools in a blog post. It is a worthwhile sentiment and one that is often declared by charter school chains like idea. But these chains, despite claiming to be universally beneficial to all children, are publicly funded but privately operated and serve only a narrow portion of public school students. An increasing body of research reveals that charter schools often drain funding from students in traditional neighbourhood schools. This type of PR-friendly rhetoric is found throughout the industry. KIPP, a nationwide chain similar to IDEA, says that its vision is that every child grows up free to create the future that they want for themselves and their community. Charter Solutions, a Utah-based charter school management company, says that schools it works with ensure that every individual has the opportunity to thrive. And the California Charter Schools Association, a charter school lobbying group, says it exists to uplift all of California's students. More famously, former US Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, a staunch supporter of charter schools and other forms of education privatization, said that her job was to make all schools better for all students across the country. Yet, this language doesn't quite match the reality, as the operation of these schools comes with a cost to other students. An increasing body of research reveals that charter schools often drain funding from students in traditional neighbourhood schools. In 2018, in the Public Interest Study, found that four Californian school districts, including San Diego and Oakland, lose tens of millions of dollars each year that would be recouped if students attended neighbourhood schools instead of charter schools. And that applies in Australia. If a lot of the children who were enrolled in private schools were in our public schools, uh, then the funding would follow them. We have what's known really as a voucher system in Australia, accepting that private school students often get more public money than public school students. Another study found that the net negative fiscal impact to six Pennsylvania school districts ranged between $8,000 and $17,000 per pupil in the first year after a student leaves for a charter school. A recent study concluding that charter schools don't hurt the finances of school districts has been thoroughly critiqued. 
Charter schools also all too frequently engage in fraudulent financial schemes that take funding directly out of classrooms. Oh, doesn't this all sound so familiar? Yes. Mm. <laughs> With the Australian situation. Mm. Yes. In February, the founders of A3 Education, a California network of online charter schools, were required to return more than $210 million that they obtained through an enrollment scam to funnel public dollars into their own pockets. Last month, Ideas Board of Directors ousted two of the chain's leaders due to financial mishandling. This came after IDEA drew criticism in 2020 for attempting to lease a private jet for board members at an annual cost of $1.92 million. Oh, my goodness. It's wild. Charter Solutions, the Utah company, is run by a state senator who between 2015 and 2018 collected $5.7 million in fees from charter schools, all of it public money. The gobs of money leaving the classroom become even more eye-popping when considering perhaps the biggest lesson the pandemic has taught us about public education. The most resilient schools are those who have enough resources to provide students, families, and even communities with support beyond just education. From Los Angeles to West Virginia, educators and school staff have stepped up in ways they never thought they would have imagined. From delivering lunches to coordinating vaccines, it's become apparent in recent months that public schools following the community school strategy have been some of the most successful at navigating the ups and downs of the pandemic. Many community schools even offer things like food, clothing and bill assistance to community members with no ties to the school. Community schools are public schools that bring together community partners, including nonprofits, local businesses, and public institutions, to support students, families, and nearby residents. This support ranges from after school educational programming for both students and parents to healthcare, such as dental services and mental health resources. Many community schools even offer things like food, clothing, and bill assistance to community members with no ties to the school. Southside K-8 School in the town of Wah, West Virginia, exemplifies this approach. Since becoming a community school in 2014, it has offered free dental and other wraparound services to students, movie nights for families, gym access for residents, and more. During the pandemic, Southside and other nearby community schools have leveraged school bus routes to deliver books, meals and schoolwork to families. They've also opened a wireless access points to facilitate online schooling. By May 2020, they had distributed nearly 40,000 books to students sheltering at home. Enos Garcia Elementary in Taos, New Mexico, has been providing families with food, clothing, and assistance with paying bills, basic computer training, and English as a second language classes, based on the needs assessments school staff conducted when the pandemic began. Club Boulevard Elementary in Durham, North North Carolina, used an innovative app to communicate with parents as the local school district navigated between online and in-person schooling. This streamlined the school's distribution of computers and tech support to students. Array Elementary in rural New Mexico has been provided COVID-19 health information and testing services to its surrounding community. 
In May, it coordinated with local health departments to administer vaccines. Those are stories of individual schools doing remarkable things. But the community school strategy works on a much larger scale too. Research shows that community schools that adhere to best practices not only improve ed student educational outcomes, but they also reduce racial and economic achievement gaps. State legislative legislatures and even the federal government are starting to take more notice of the community school strategy. President Joe Biden proposed $443 million for community schools in his education budget. That is 15 times the current level of federal spending. California used $45 million in federal COVID-19 relief to start a competitive grant program for expanding community schools. Cincinnati's school district used the relief to offer students summer learning programs that address learning loss during the pandemic. If our mission is to make sure all children receive a great education, then charter schools, private school vouchers, and other forms of privatization fall short. And if we want to go even further to ensure that public institutions are meeting the needs of the communities they serve, then community schools are a promising education reform that deserve adequate public investment. Well, isn't so, that interesting? And, um, you know, I think that we should be thinking of public schools uh, after the pandemic and the um, even now with the uh, the whole question of um, vaccinations. I'm quite sure the teachers will be much better organisers than the army to bring in the army to deal with a civil society and a problem in a health pandemic is to me seems really very, very dangerous indeed. But in Australia too, uh, we have had attempts in the past to have community schools. And so many of our public schools are in fact community schools because they relate day after day after day through the parents and the teachers and the students to their local community. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a break and come back and Dale will talk about the Australian experience. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. 
Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program. We hope you're still with us because Dale is going to tell us a little bit about recent uh, community school experiences in our public system. It's always been there, of course. There are so many schools where unsung heroes amongst the teachers and parents have been looking after very badly disadvantaged students for years and years, knowing that they can't learn anything unless they've had a good breakfast. And so breakfast has often been provided at school before the children even go into school. But uh, over to you, uh, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, uh, the, Australia, the Australian experience. Um, public education was established in Australia in 1848 to educate the white children in outback New South Wales. Uh, private schools have never been able to educate those in remote areas unless they are able to pay expensive boarding school fees. So the Australian politicians, in their wisdom, established the old Irish national system, which was to, intended to be non-sectarian and open to all children. In those days, of course, Ireland was a colony much like Australia was. Uh, a bit different, but uh, not that different, yes. But the problem of lack of resources and declining population when families move to cities has always dogged rural schools. Declining enrolments mean loss of teachers and curriculum choices, particularly in small secondary schools. But if, if there is both a private and public school in a small rural town, the problems are exacerbated manyfold. Now, yeah, Adam Carey in The Age on the 3rd of August has a successful story to tell. Uh, he says rural schools join forces and funds to fight student exodus. Uh, country principal Jo Amett freely admits that she's in charge of a school that is caught in a downward spiral. Enrolments at Balmoral K-12 Community College have fallen sharply in the past six years from 162 students in 2015 to just 97 this year in a pattern of decline that has begun to feed off itself. Although the school's results have remained steady, the declining number of students has made it harder to offer some specialist subjects or put on team sports and graduation ceremonies. This has led some students to leave, defecting to other schools in bigger towns. Others have moved on simply because their friends have left. I came here three years ago and I was like, I'm going to turn things around. This is going to be awesome. But I got to, the, to a point at the end of my first year where I was like, it's just this spiral. And unless I can grab 40 kids and start afresh, I can't see a circuit breaker, Ms Amot said. The school town's problems were not unique to the West Wimmera region, which lost 14% of its population in the 10 years to 2016. 
the most recent census found. Since the enrolments at government schools in the region have declined at an even faster rate, down by 40% at Balmoral, by 22% at Eden Hope College, and by 34% at Baroque Peter 12 College, the shared problem has led the schools to commit to something they've never done before, combining forces and funding to try to arrest the slide. Too often, it's like a competition between schools trying to get each other's numbers. But at the end of the day, the schools are there for the kids, not for us, said Eden Hope College Assistant Principal Chad Frost. It's like merging a footy team. It happens all the time in the bush, otherwise they die. But the three schools have no plans to merge. Rather, they have committed to pool resources to hire new teachers and support staff, beginning with a mental health practitioner who will work across all three schools. Baroque uh, Peter 12 College Principal Dee Kersley said this will overcome one of the biggest problems small schools face in hiring new staff, lack of funds to offer a full-time position. It is hoped new teachers will be hired to work across all three schools, which have agreed to align their timetables and composite year levels so specialist classes can happen simultaneously, with students either being bused to one school or two schools joining in virtually while students at the third are taught face-to-face. -face. We'd be able to offer things like woodwork, metalwork, automotive and LOAT, languages other than English, which we haven't, as it's really hard for us when we try to get teachers for those, Ms Kirsty said. The schools have also agreed to hold a combined Year 12 formal later this year. Ms Amot said her school could not have held an event on its own given its small number of VCE and VCAL students. The three schools committed to work together at an all-staff meeting in July, which was convened by the Country Education Partnership, a non-profit organisation that works to improve education opportunities in rural and regional areas. Executive Officer Phil Brown said West Wimmera schools were following the example of a handful of other Victorian schools seeking to find strength in collaboration, including a government and a Catholic school in Natalia and a cluster of primary schools in Gippsland. The work that we are doing is about encouraging schools to come together and explore the possibilities and breaking down those often limiting barriers that some schools see as not an advantage to work together, he said. Well, isn't that interesting? Um, of course, if there hadn't been a, a Catholic school set up in Nathalia, there would have been enough students to begin with, wouldn't there? Yes. So perhaps the time has come to take it over. Yes. Make it a public school because we're paying for it. Because everybody in that town actually just does want their students to live together. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back to some more interesting material. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda, and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. 
We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day. And we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. You know, it's quite confusing, the cultural heritage laws in this country, and that is of extreme concern to our people across this country. And, you know, not only the Japarum trees, there's Duke and Gorge, and there are a number of other sacred areas of extreme significance to our peoples across the country that are being, you know, because of the cultural heritage laws that are in place are, you know, not actually protecting our heritage at all. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Well, we're still in the middle of lockdowns and poor New South Wales and Sydney are very, very much in the middle of lockdowns. So we in Melbourne can commiserate with them because we've been through it. But uh, the ongoing lockdowns in Australian schools have made us very, very much aware of the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots in our community. And uh, there's a very interesting article in The Guardian of the 28th of July by Antoinette Latouf, and um, Sorrel's going to give us the lowdown on that. Over to you, Sorrel. Thank you, Jean. So Antoinette... Latouf has uh, written this article for us and she has written educators have had a long enough to create a consistent online learning program that doesn't leave so many students behind. While her teacher is lovely and holds a 20 minute daily Zoom session for morale, it's not nearly enough to teach my daughter foundational literacy and numeracy skills. It was 11.30 a.m. on a school day and I was still in pajamas. I had had enough and was feeling overwhelmed and deflated. I walked away from my kids and the dining table littered with scraps of paper and pencil sharpenings. I curled up in a ball in front of the heater. My six-year-old stood up from her chair and yelled that I was the worst teacher ever. She probably wasn't wrong. I didn't move for the next three hours. This wasn't my finest parenting moment. It was an even worse educator moment. It was also the culmination of pandemic fatigue, trying to homeschool my children full time while also doing my job. And before teachers angrily message me that I'm diminishing their profession by not referring to my makeshift educator role as remote learning, please let me explain. The latest iteration of school lockdown has highlighted the widening haves and have-nots in the education system. It's also shown a lack of leadership and uniformity at school, state and federal levels. Some schools have virtual classes all day where a teacher interacts with students. These students are fortunate enough to partake of of live lessons where involvement and accountability are part of the process. 
Heck, some of the most privileged private school students got access to the Pfizer vaccine, apparently by error, despite (laughs) millions of adults like me who are still not eligible to receive it. And let's not forget that while I'm forced to watch my daughter colour in and label a giraffe and missing work deadlines, some private school students are granted exemptions to go on excursions to the bush and the snow. Other schools email many links to YouTube and endless worksheets, and parents are expected to teach, supervise, and keep their multiple children engaged. They're also lucky if they receive one quick phone call a week from the school. For some students, their remote learning experiences sit somewhere in between. Perhaps they get an optional 15-minute check-in over Zoom each day, and teachers may give some feedback on individual progress over email. My youngest daughter requires constant supervision and help. And while her teacher is lovely and holds 20 minute daily Zoom sessions for morale, it's not nearly enough to teach my daughter foundational literacy and numeracy skills. It's broadly understood and accepted that remote learning can't match the richness and quality of face-to-face learning and peer interaction. That is not my gripe. I am frustrated because more than 18 months into the pandemic, many schools continue to take the light touch approach to remote learning and refuse to acknowledge how this negatively impacts both children and their parents. Last year, research from the Grattan Institute showed the achievement gap between disadvantaged and advantaged students widens at triple the rate in remote schooling compared to regular classes. An estimated one in four students will need to catch up on their learning. This includes students from low socioeconomic families, Indigenous backgrounds and remote communities, as well as students experiencing poor mental health, the authors have warned. Despite these findings, many schools still actively encouraging, reading, pressuring parents to keep their kids with disabilities at home. Others check in from time to time and offer to take kids if parents are really struggling to meet their children's additional needs. I also know of single parents who have used up all of their annual leave to homeschool their children. For months now, education experts have been urging state governments to provide more direction to schools when it comes to remote learning. They're concerned that inconsistent teaching methods and vastly differing expectations put scores of students at a disadvantage. Last year's parents were told, and we reminded one another, to not stress too much all kids are resilient, just do what you can at home, and that in the end, they'll all just catch up. And I was willing to accept those vague consolations and assurances because everyone was navigating uncharted waters. There was little time for planning and standardising remote learning, and parents were glad to be accommodating. Since the pandemic, Victorian students have missed out on a whopping 126 days of in-class learning. This hasn't been some fleeting moment that we need to accept and will pass. There is no excuse for state education departments, the Catholic dioceses and independent school leaders to pretend to be shocked by the volatility of the virus. Why aren't they working together to establish consistent online modules and virtual teaching credentialing standards? What about mandating that schools offer devices and internet connections to students who don't have access to them? Surely there should also be a process for schools to identify students who are struggling and tutors made available. With no end in sight to the lockdown, especially for New South Wales, 
year 12 students who are about to sit their final exams shouldn't have to accept that there is no consistent plan for the most significant schooling year other than the expectation that they'll stare at Zoom all day. But if schools aren't doing it for themselves, what about the respective education ministers and premiers? There's a national cabinet meeting at the end of this week. I'd like to put this on their homework list. Well, isn't that fascinating? Parents understand that if their children are going to get anything like a decent go, there should be standardisation, there should be uniformity in the curriculum, and there should be some kind of uniformity in the experiences that their children have. And um, here's a parent who's working, uh, who's waking up that in fact there is none of that in Australia now, or they would, though there would have been 60 or 70 years ago, particularly in the public system. But the privatisation and the neoliberal uh, ideas of decentralisation rather than centralisation have led to um, so much fragmentation of the educational enterprise and the parents are in... Well, they've woken up, haven't they? It's actually not good enough. The leaders have pushed the uh, responsibilities down the line to just individual teachers. And the system and the leadership are lacking. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and then we're going to come back to um, Dale, who's going to tell us about what's happening up in the Northern Territory. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Councils around the country will put on Disability Day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool that everyone you'll hear on here today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think in in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep radical voices on air 
subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, you're listening to the Dogs program and we've had a very varied program to date uh, talking about community schools and uh, we've also been finding out from a parent uh, the difficulties and what's been happening from the point of view of homeschooling, forced homeschooling uh, in, our, in our different communities. But um, Dale's going to tell us how the Northern Territory schools get around the, the, the quite shocking fact that their, their students get less per head than anywhere else in Australia, even though they have the highest percentage of Indigenous students. But over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got an article here uh, saying Northern Territory schools make a little go a long way. Students in the top end attend some of Australia's most remote schools in often challenging conditions, yet government funding is the lowest in the country. Analysis by economist Adam Roris has found that public schools in all states except the ACT are underfunded by between $1,000 and $2,000 per student per year. Schools in the Northern Territory are underfunded by more than $6,000 per student per year. By 2023, Northern Territory schools will be 20% short of the funding they need, says Roris in his 2020 report, The Schooling Resource Standard in Australia, Impacts on Schools. An NT government report leaked to ABC News in November 2020 has confirmed the funding crisis. The internal review of the Northern Territory's homelands schools found a lack of clarity, support and accountability, according to the ABC. At Al Para School in the Utopia homelands, 250 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs, Principal Stephen Nimmo who is the Northern Territory representative on the AEU Federal Principals Committee, oversees five school sites with a total of 300 students from early childhood to year 12. The Utopia homelands cover 3,500 square kilometres and include 16 different communities and several language groups. A fleet of 12 school buses travels long distances each day on dirt roads to pick up and deliver students to their classrooms. The longest trip is 96 kilometres each way. On Nimmo's wish list is more staff, teachers and specialists, Aboriginal educators and administrative support. In one remote site, one teacher has 24 students in six age groups from preschool to year five. The students' basic needs are being met during their classes, but Nimmo worries about the depth of learning. It's hard enough in a class of 24 when the students are all the same age. It's very difficult when there's a mix of ages, he says. Ideally, he'd like more teachers, preferably Aboriginal teachers, and more Aboriginal assistant teachers. English is the third or fourth language for many students. So it's essential to have Aboriginal educators in class who can translate. Nimmo said the order of priority for 
any spare funds in schools is teachers and assistant teachers, then specialists, and finally, administrative assistants. Principals tend to lose out in terms of backroom support, he says. After five years at Alpara, Nimmo has worked out a balance of classroom and administrative support, but he says a shortage of administrative staff is typical in Northern Territory public schools. Other staff too are missed. Most of the librarians disappeared long ago. The special ed teachers started to disappear and you begin to talk about sharing special ed teachers. School counsellors are also now shared within a region. We have one school counsellor who services eight schools in a region that is slightly larger than the entire state of Victoria. So there's a bit of travelling. And that story was originally published in the Australian Educator Winter 2021. We'll have a quick break and we'll be right back with more dogs. Want to defend government schools? We are the dogs, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the Dogs Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent, or if you're a kid, or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever, and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really school. concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got vis- physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Three CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. As much as we are lied to that what is happening in Palestine is complicated, there is nothing complicated about it. Israel maintains a regime of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. None of these concepts are new. They have all existed in some form throughout history. This nation is founded on settler colonialism. Drawing parallels between our struggles doesn't only shed light on the commonality of different social justice issues, but it also shows us that as Palestinians, our freedom and liberation is so inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many others around the world. 3CR Radio Time, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03 
9419 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we're coming back from the Northern Territory and that extraordinary situation uh, where teachers really are the heroes in this country. And uh, Sol's going to tell us what the OECD has got to say about career guidance, helping youth out of the COVID pandemic. This is a very interesting article by Anthony Mann that we thought um, our young people might find and our teachers might find of interest. Over to you, uh, Sorrel. Thank you. So in celebration of World Youth Skills Day 2021, the OECD has joined forces with the European Centre for the Development of Vocational Training, the European Commission, the European Training Foundation, the International Labour Organisation, and the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization to shine a light on career guidance. As countries around the world turn to their plans for recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, these organizations are issuing a joint leaflet highlighting the importance of investing in career guidance. Career guidance helps people of any age manage their careers and make makes the educational, training and occupational choices that are right for them. It is particularly important for young people as it helps them to reflect on their ambitions, interests, qualifications, skills and talents and to relate this knowledge about who they are to who they might become in the world of work. Investing in career guidance to broaden young people's aspirations. Even prior to the pandemic, career guidance was receiving increased attention from policymakers, reflecting a concern that the skills developed in the education system might not be well aligned with emerging labour market needs, generating costly skill mismatches and shortages. The results of the triennial OECD program for international assessment gave cause for concern. In 2018, only half of the students in OECD countries reported that they had spoken to a career guidance counsellor in school by the age of 15, and fewer than 40% attended important guidance activities like job shadowing, workplace visits, or job fairs. Investing in career guidance can help broaden young people's aspirations and reduce inequalities. Analysis of the career ambitions of 15-year-old students show that the aspirations of students are heavily shaped by socioeconomic status, gender and migrant background. Investing in career guidance can help to broaden young people's aspirations and reduce inequalities. It can also help to overcome career uncertainty about occupational choices, which increased by 81% between 2000 and 2018. When students do name the type of job in which they expect to work as an adult, relatively little evidence of labour market signalling is apparent. Across the OECD, more than half of teenagers around the world plan on working in one of 10 specific occupations. Outside of the OECD, this proportion often rises above 70%. So what they're saying is the students aren't even aware of what's actually available to them out there. They have a very, very limited view of 
of jobs where they're going. Yeah, definitely. I this In my personal life, I was never offered career guidance throughout any of my schooling and I did graduate year 12 during that period. So yeah. it's, it is truly very relevant. Yeah. Um, the need for guidance has increased sharply in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. The crisis has deeply disturbed the demand for workers and accelerated patterns of automation that are profoundly changing the character of work and increasing risks of unemployment, particularly for young people. As young people stay in schooling longer and confront an ever wider choice of education and training options, it is essential that they can draw a clear connection between what they are doing in the classroom and who they might become in the workplace. The new joint leaflet argues that guidance has an essential role to play in enabling youth to navigate increasingly turbulent transitions. Career guidance has a fundamental role to play in recovery. The benefits of career guidance are widely documented. New analysis of, analyses of national, national longitudinal data sets show that better than expected adult employment outcomes are commonly associated with how school-aged teenagers think about their future careers, whether they explore possible employment options and gain a work experience skill while still in school. Participation in career guidance by young adults has been associated with wage premiums, lower rates of unemployment, and greater career satisfaction, as well as increased academic motivation and more positive attitudes towards school. The leaflet highlights a number of effective ways to enrich career guidance in schools, stressing the importance of access from an early age and of enriching guidance through the involvement of employers and people in work. As the COVID-19 pandemic ushers in a period of profound disruption, the need to close the gap between education and employment through effective guidance becomes ever more urgent. Yes, so there's another job for schools and teachers. We overload our schools and our teachers, but obviously career guidance for teenagers who are about to leave school or even earlier is essential. Uh, but um, there aren't too many career guidance officers appointed into the public school system. And the private school system depends upon the who knows who uh, mm -hmm. uh, networks, doesn't it? But we'll have a bit of a break and we come back to the Great State School. Hey, Dale, have you got a Great State School for us? Uh, yes, we do. We'll be right back. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment 
to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our great state school for the week this week is Bentley Secondary College. Uh, a little bit about Bentley Secondary College, uh, their visions, values and goals. Uh, they believe schools might, must provide opportunities for the development of the skills and capacities young people need to lead creative, satisfying and productive lives. Our key educational priorities are to ensure that students have access to curriculum activities which broaden and deepen their experience and values personal effort and excellence. The Bentley Secondary College vision is to develop students who will be engaged in their learning and become lifelong learners who will develop resilience and optimism, uh, who are independent learners whose learning styles are extended by teachers who use a wide range of teaching strategies and learning technologies uh, and will utilise technology that will provide them with experiences that enable them to develop an international perspective. We want our students to acquire the values to become responsible global citizens. Currently, High Secondary College's values uh, they demonstrate the following agreed set of values. Excellence, being the best you can be. Inclusiveness, the right to feel safe. Respect, the right to be treated with respect. Responsibility, the right to learn. And community, the right to be supported by a positive community. And their goals, Bentley Secondary undertook the process of establishing a four-year strategic plan for 2020 to 2024 with the aim of improving the college. The goals set for this period are to improve student achievement, to improve student engagement in learning and to improve student resilience and well-being. They are planning a new Bentley Secondary College Performing Arts Centre with Principal Ms Hiatus and students represent student representatives leading the way. After the amazing success working with architect Haskell to design their purpose-built Da Vinci Centre, they're excited to be working together again to design a state-of-the-art performing, performing arts centre. Uh, the My School website information is as follows. Students, there are 1,030 students at this school, uh, 592 boys, 438 girls. The Ixia value of the school is uh, 1,064, the average being 1,000. So that is, this school is has a broad range of children from many different economic and language backgrounds attending it, a true public school. There are 29% of students from families with incomes in the top quartile, the top socioeconomic quartile. There are 31% of students with families with incomes in the second top quartile. There are 27% of students from families in the third uh, quartile. And there are 13% of disadvantaged students from families with incomes in the lowest quartile. Uh, and 32% of the students speak a language other than English at home. 
their finances are as such. The Australian government provides 2.7 million. The Victorian government provides 10.6 million. The parents uh, provide 1.38 million in fees, which uh, you know that can fluctuate uh, depending on whether or not parents are able to pay. And the private fundraising uh, is for over $400,000. So at this school, the NAPLAN results indicate that the students are progressing well with their studies. The students, parents, public and taxpayer are getting very good value at Bentley Secondary College. So it's congratulations to all concerned. Uh, Bentley Secondary College, you are our great state school for the week. Over to you, Jean. Yes, uh, that school, uh, on those figures, it costs just over 14000 per student. That's a bargain. It is. The taxpayer should be very happy and the parents should be very happy with that school. Uh, down that way, of course, people prefer McKinnon Secondary College. There's a bit of competition there, which is sad, but uh, Bentley Secondary College sounds like rather a nice school to me especially if they're going to have a performing arts centre. But um, I think that wraps it all up for this week. And uh, if you want to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And from Dale and Sol and myself, Jean, it's bye for now.
Sir. Uh-huh.